chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know all, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods for the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way toward him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his, his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This story of Paul in Athens is a story about evangelism. And it's specifically about evangelism in a place unfamiliar with the claims of Christianity. And the word evangelism is scary for us. We think of ruined relationships and raised voices. Uh, we don't want to alienate anybody. The gospel is central to our lives, but we have negative connotations about proselytizing or Bible bashing. Well, this passage addresses those issues because Paul's context in Athens is very similar to our own. But first, let's go over some quick background. We've been studying the book of Acts. The book is called Acts because Luke, the author, is chronicling the actions, the acts of Jesus' followers after his ascension. And his followers' main mission is to tell the truth about Jesus, the gospel. They're traveling around to the known world proclaiming this good news, that Jesus is in fact king of the universe. He is God become man. And his resurrection has defeated sin and death. And because of that, all people everywhere need to repent. 
Now, that's a difficult task. That's a difficult action. So what we've seen in our study of Acts is week after week, it is the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit of Jesus Christ, who is acting. He is the one who is sending and equipping the followers of Jesus in their mission. Last week, Bradley preached on Paul going to Macedonia, where he is participating in the Spirit's mission to the towns Berea and Thessalonica. And he actually was so effective in those two towns that the officials forced him to flee south to Athens, which is where we pick up our passage today. Like I said, this central theme is evangelism. And this passage gives us four practical truths about our evangelism to others. One is that evangelism comes from this place of waiting. Another is that evangelism is provoked from our hearts. The third is that evangelism is sharp to the soul, but it is soft to the touch. And the fourth is that evangelism is a display of God's sovereignty. So let's first look at how evangelism comes from a place of waiting. We might ask, where is a place I should evangelize? And if you look at uh, chapter 17, verse 16, it gives us an answer. It opens up by saying, while Paul was waiting. I don't know where you specifically find yourself today, but you most likely consider your stage of life to be one of waiting. In youth group, we've had some junior high kids say they can't wait to get a little older so they can get off to high school. And the issue with that is we have some high schoolers who say, no, I can't wait to get a license and a car and experience some real freedom. And the issue with that is that some of our drivers are saying, I can't wait to get off to college. And sooner or later, life becomes a ladder. Each rung we climb up is a different place of waiting. We're going to talk about philosophy today. So let me quote two 20th century philosophers who speak to the idea of waiting. Bruce Springsteen said some people spend their life waiting for a moment that just won't come. And John Lennon said life is what happens when we're making other plans. But if you look in the section we read just a second ago, you'll notice that our author Luke doesn't consider waiting a bad thing. Paul is stuck in Athens, and there's no judgment for that. If you're a realist, this is your passage. It's not a question of whether or not Paul is waiting He is. The question is, how does our faith affect the way we are waiting? This passage could paraphrase John Lennon. Evangelism is what happens when we are making other plans because we're never going to get to the point in our lives where we say, I feel settled. I'm going to go out and share the gospel with people. God has called you to evangelize where you are right now. And in our waiting, we're called to be attentive to our surroundings. We're called to meet people where we are, learn to love them, and eventually share the gospel with them. So Paul, though stuck in Athens, is absorbing information about the world around him. He's not sulking in his hotel room. He's not burying his head into a smartphone, waiting to get reunited with his friends. Paul is absorbing Athens' culture, its history, its philosophies, and eventually its idolatries. And we must do that too. we got to ask, who lives in this tiny slice of the world that I inhabit? We need to look at the circles we run in and say, what are these people hoping for? What do they believe in? What do they think life is all about? 
Paul is doing this information, so allow me to give you some historical information on the city of Athens so we can know what he discovers. So Athens was the uh, epicenter of education and schooling in ancient times. The world's brightest minds poured into Athens every year to write and develop and to think. It was where most of the philosophy and science and technology happened. The Areopagus, which is the scene of uh, Paul's prayer, I mean, Paul's sermon, was this center on a hill where the great minds of the city would come to discuss ideas. And these were cutting-edge ideas on all things math and architecture, physics, and the meaning of life. And the city was obsessed with new information. You see that in verse 21. So if there was a new idea, the Athenians were among the first to hear about it, to find funding for it, to beta test it for the rest of the ancient world. Now Luke mentions in verse 18 that the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers take a particular interest in Paul. So allow me to explain those two philosophies. Uh, By the time Paul is in Athens, these are two well-established philosophies that have been around for 300 years, but they're totally different. So I think Luke puts them in the same sentence because they have the same view of death. The Stoics taught that life was the rational, that death was a rational conclusion to life. While the Epicureans taught that death was the natural conclusion to life. Both philosophies in their ethics said you can't spend your time worrying about death because it is the end and it makes no sense to be worried about it. Now the Stoics ethics diverged from the Epicureans. They said that it's important to be rational, to shed your emotions, and because the world is a rational place, be a rational person. And the Epicureans valued pleasure over rationality. They said, if life is going to end, enjoy it. But Paul is attentive. In his waiting, he understands these philosophies, and we're going to unpack how his sermon addresses this view of death. So while waiting, Paul at first sees a city full of very intelligent people living these complex philosophies. And as we study our neighbors, we're going to recognize some of their philosophies as well. However, that's not the only thing Paul sees. He sees that the city is full of idols. And that brings us to our second point, which is that evangelism is provoked from the heart. You'll see that it says that when Paul saw that the city uh, was full of idols, he was provoked. Well, the description full of idols in verse 16 is actually not an exaggeration. Petronius, who was an ancient writer, a contemporary of Paul, sarcastically remarked, that there were more gods than men in Athens. Idolatry was very prolific. Otherwise, intelligent, thoughtful people are participating in these superstitious rituals and sacrifices to idols designed to avoid pain and discomfort. So it turns out that the people of Athens had these piecemeal solutions to life's most complex problems. They would sacrifice to this God over here to earn his pleasure, and they would walk over to another part of town and visit this temple for good luck. They might practice Stoicism sometimes, maybe with their overly emotional wife over here, but then they would practice Epicureanism when they went out with their buddies on Friday nights over there. And it was a complete mess. 
So what we have in Athens is a major university town that has strong philosophical and scientific research, but also attempts to alleviate its pain and suffering through man-made objects to give temporary release or cover for guilt and shame. Does that sound like a city or a town or a village near you? The parallels between Athens and Newton and Wellesley and Boston are stunning. Theologian Millard Erickson says that idolatry is the epitome of sin because it displaces God from his throne. When we think of idolatry in our modern context, we need to be asking, how am I adopting the philosophies of my time to avoid pain? Or how am I displacing God in my life to try to attempt to cover my own guilt and shame? Allow me to discuss two examples that I think are common to Newton and Wellesley. A lot of us desire respect. We want to be adored. We want to feel part of a community that makes us meaningful. But respect becomes idolatry when we place demands on others and make them simply exist for our self-worth. Paul would say that's completely illogical because God already loves you as much as he ever will. There are no demands you can place on anyone or anything that will make God love you or respect you more. Your value is concrete in him. And so our pursuits for respect in making other people objects comes across as groveling. Another thing we worship is excellence. I think the Northeast region of the United States especially struggles with this. We live and work in places where we want to be the best at everything. We somehow think that the best high school athletes are the most socially acceptable. We work in businesses where the best marketers think they can be the best managers. Uh, we see the best scientists try to be the best entrepreneurs. Everyone wants to be the best at everything. And the logic behind that is that God has created us with a finite number of gifts. We're supposed to work in community to get things done. Therefore, our attempts to be excellent can sometimes make us liars. We'll present ourselves as someone we're not, or we'll tell tall tales, or we'll manipulate data. And those two examples are obviously about ourselves, but here's another one that, is, that can, we can create an idol from something that is from the best of our intentions. And those two things are generosity and inclusivity. When we think about other people outside of ourselves, sometimes we'll want to be the most generous or the most inclusive. And the problem is with that is we have tons of communities where the stakeholders making the decisions for and about the people in our life are the same elite few who have always been in power. Boston is filled with businesses and organizations and universities that want to be the most inclusive. And really the reason they're doing that is to transform themselves into elite power centers. And so what begins as ideals, what begins as uh, caring for people of color or the disabled or the disadvantaged becomes simply the appearance of being inclusive or generous in order to undergird the elite status of the organization. And so as a result, we trade in real progress and real social justice for self-serving paternalism or what we would call wokeness. Now, 
These idols are not obvious to us at first, but as we study our communities and organizations, we're going to identify them. So what is our response to these idolatries and empty philosophies? Again, verse 16 provides us an answer. It says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. And this sense of provoked means that he was deeply troubled. He was irritated to the point of anger. For Paul, the gospel is completely incongruous with the people of Athens bowing down to a god of gold or stone or wood. And he's shocked to see these half-baked philosophies. It turns out that the cradle of Western civilization, the birthplace of democracy, actually is on this crumbling foundation of idolatry. And therefore, he takes a gospel message about the risen Jesus Christ into the synagogues there, into the marketplace, into the Areopagus. And when we see the idolatry of our friends and loved ones, we too are going to want to craft a gospel message. And that brings us to our third point, which is when we are provoked, maybe even to the point of anger at the idolatry around us, we have to remember that the gospel message is sharp to the soul, but it is soft to the touch. It is sharp to the soul, but it is soft to the touch. Look at Paul's words in his sermon. They are subdued and winsome. His tone distinguishes his hatred for idolatry and his love for people worshiping idols. Whenever we consider talking to our friends about the gospel, we become aware of two instantaneous realities. One is that the Bible is our absolute truth. We consider it as absolute truth for everybody. And the gospel is our only hope in this life and in our death and in the world to come. However, the very exclusive nature of the gospel makes us not want to crush people or judge people or alienate people. And so the exclusionary nature of Christianity both alarms us to evangelize while simultaneously wanting to, uh, making us want to not evangelize. Now, you'll notice in verse 18 that Paul is called a babbler. And I think that's an important word for us to remember. When we share the gospel with our loved ones and friends, we're probably not the first babbler about Christianity they've ever come across. However, you might be the first person equipped with the real gospel who cares about them from a heart provoked from love. So first, let's look at how Paul crafts his gospel message in words that are sharp to the soul. In verse 24, if you'll look with me, he tells the Athenians that his God is objectively the Lord of heaven and earth. He says his God does not live in temples made by man. Paul does not say many of the things that we're often struggled, we struggle with when we're sharing the gospel. Sometimes we'll say, this is what I believe. There could be many paths to God. I am no expert. No, Paul actually doesn't say that. He tells the Athenians that their idols are worthless man-made objects. And he continues with his hard message. In verse 30, you'll see that he says all people need to repent. And his reasoning for that repentance is equally alarming. In verse 31, he says the risen Christ will return to judge the world. And so we have to remind our friends of the reality. Jesus is king of the universe. He does forgive sins. But for those who place their righteousness in themselves and not have faith in Jesus and in the righteousness of God, he is returning to judge the world. And if you live 
in a city like Athens that is full of idols, that is not going to be a pleasant day. So Paul's words are sharp to the Athenians' unbelieving soul. I have a professor, when we talk about this at school, always says, do you want a dentist who will tell you you need a root canal or not? Root canals are extremely painful. They hurt. But it really isn't going to fix anything if you go to a worse dentist who pokes around in your mouth for a couple seconds and goes, ah, you know what, you're fine. When really your teeth are about to fall out. The gospel says we need a root canal. And it's giving people the good news of Jesus Christ and letting them make the decision. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. The Athenians can either go get a root canal or they can go to the Epicureans and the Stoics who will tell them everything is fine. There's nothing to worry about. Are you willing to share your faith with your friends or are you letting them live in these piecemeal idolatry and philosophy combinations? We have to tell people they need a root canal because we love them not because we hate them. And root canals are painful because it's removing an infection from our teeth. It is not because your dentist is evil. But despite this hard message, notice Paul's tone is extremely gentle. It is soft to the touch. Dane and I were in a park on Monday, and a guy was on an actual soapbox, and he was screaming at these NYU students, and telling them they were all living in sin and they were all going to hell. That message is sharp to the soul, but it is also sharp to the touch. And believe it or not, it did not work. Uh, The gospel is telling someone they are unwell. It is not calling someone a disease. It is not calling someone stupid. It is not calling someone uh, evil. Uh, Think about that doctor-patient relationship we all have. Do you want your doctor to have a good bedside manner? Study after study in the medical field has proven that a positive relationship between the doctor and patient can make significant differences in the well-being of the patient. Atul Gawande, who's a local surgeon, writes, you come in as a doctor or a surgeon equipped with expertise and technology. You do not imagine that a mere matter of etiquette could foil you. In this work about sickness, we begin not with genetic or cellular interactions, but with human ones. Paul shows us that evangelism is just as much about tone as it is the message. It is just as much about his tone as it is the message. Your tone can reveal God's love and compassion and grace in words, in ways that actual words coming out of your mouth cannot. So what does Paul's soft tone and message look like? The first thing he does is he finds common ground with the Athenians. If you'll look at verses 22 and 23, he affirms their religiosity and he mentions their altar to an unknown God. And then in verse 27, He tells them, God is not far from you. He also quotes two of their own philosophers in verse 28 who affirm aspects of Christianity's story that God is the sole creator. He's saying, y'all are so close. You have so much figured out. 
when we're talking with our friends and neighbors and loved ones about the gospel, we have to find that common ground. Affirm, affirm, affirm. Bradley always says that if your friend agrees with you on seven of ten steps towards faith in Jesus Christ, then you have to affirm all seven of those steps. Even if steps one through seven are small and insignificant, and steps eight, nine, and ten are massive and completely incompatible. For Paul, the gospel is this scalpel. It's not an axe. If he's talking to Betty and Billy over there in the Athenian marketplace, he's concerned with Betty and Billy's soul. He's angry at Betty and Billy's sin. He's not angry with Betty and Billy the people. Now, why is his tone so soft? It's because he understands God's grace. Jesus stopped Paul in his tracks and changed his life. Paul's goal is not to go out and win some debate in the Areopagus. It is to have people like Betty and Billy come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he seeks common ground. You'll also notice he softens his real language. In verse 29, he says, We ought not think that the divine is like man-made idols. He doesn't walk into the Areopagus and scream at all of them, Listen here, you toga-wearing idiots! You can't think that that piece of wood you're worshiping has anything divine in it. No, he's soft. He's winsome. Therefore, they ought not worship idols. His language is smooth. Look at verse 30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. He's emphasizing the patience, the long-suffering of God. But, as a scholar points out, he's also calling the history of classical Athens ignorant. And uh, that's a bold move, but his tone saves the day. The key to understanding the gospel is knowing, realizing how much God loves you. Therefore, we have to present God as He is. He is patient. He's not vindictive. He's not spiteful. Evangelism is about deafness. It's not about bluntness. It is inclusive. It is not derogatory. Every ounce of patience gives our message an incredible weightiness. And every inch of common ground you can find with your friends represents miles and miles of progress in the kingdom of God. So Luke, this is really interesting, the author of Acts adopts Paul's winsome tone in his narrative of the story. Look at verse 18 with his use of the word some. He says only some of the philosophers called Paul a babbler. And in verse 32, only some of the Athenians mock him, while some join his gospel ministry. The Holy Spirit is guiding Paul. This passage is screaming at us. Our evangelism is not a zero-sum event. God is intimately involved in this situation. Paul's job is to go out and proclaim the gospel message. It is not to convert the entire city of Athens. That is up to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit brings us to our final point, which is that evangelism is a display of God's sovereignty. Throughout this passage, 
God is in complete control of every event. Paul is forced to flee to Athens, not his idea. He walks around the city where all the idols are exposed. Then that makes uh, Paul provoked from the heart, so he goes to the synagogue and the marketplace, reasoning with them and telling them about the risen Jesus. That catches the attention of some philosophers who then start talking with Paul and bring him to the Areopagus where they ask him to preach a sermon. And that sermon is informed by him walking around the city and seeing all the idols. It's informed by God leading him past the altar to the unknown God, which becomes the central illustration of Paul's sermon. So what is Paul going to preach on? He's going to preach on God's sovereignty. He diametrically opposes the God of the Bible to the various gods of Athens. He says that his God made the world while the Athenians worship idols that they themselves have made. In 25 and 26, we see that God is the sustainer of life, giving life and breath, allotting periods and boundaries. In verse 28 and 29, we saw that he quoted those two Greek philosophers everyone in the Areopagus would have been familiar with. And he argues that all human beings, Greeks and Jews alike, descend from the same God. If we live and move and have our being in God, then we need to worship that God and that God alone. And finally, in verses 30 through 31, Paul discusses the lordship of Jesus and points to Jesus' resurrection as proof that all people everywhere are called to repent. Repent of their sins and their idolatry and their ignorance. But why the emphasis on God's sovereignty? Why is Paul insisting at the end on repentance? Why isn't that altar to the unknown God not enough? Well, the answer isn't something we've already discussed. It's that Athenian view of death. If you were Greek in ancient times, you thought that dead people stayed dead. Death is the conclusion to life. There is nothing after. There is no return. Paul is arguing the total opposite. Because a God of life has created this world, death is completely unnatural. He alludes to Adam, the first human being in verse 26. And in Adam, all men and women who have ever lived committed idolatry. They displaced God from his throne, worshiping themselves and, in Adam's case, their own freedom. And that action brought death. However, due to his love and complete sovereignty over human events, God has been sustaining the world, and he enters the world through his son, Jesus Christ. God's ultimate act of sovereignty, the resurrection of Jesus, counteracts man's ultimate act of rebellion, the crucifixion of Jesus. So I want to return to how we started. We started by saying that evangelism happens when we are waiting. But what are we ultimately waiting for? According to Paul's sermon, we are waiting for nothing less than the resurrection of the dead. For if Jesus has resurrected from the dead, God will surely resurrect those who place their faith in him. That is Paul's only hope. What is your only hope? What cures you of your unhappiness or depression or fears? Is it to bottle up your emotions and become 
a wholly rational person like a Stoic? Or is it to pile pleasure on top of all of your pain and suffering like an Epicurean? Or are you like the Athenians and it's this mix of religio-psycho-babble combining both philosophies? Our only antidote, according to Paul, is to believe the words of Jesus when he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your hope and future are secured because God doesn't see you as an idolater. It is when you place faith in Jesus Christ, he sees you as his offspring, which Paul mentions in his sermon. Jesus' real death and real resurrection have exchanged his life for yours. And that's why Christianity, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not an idea. It is not a philosophy that's to be debated in the Areopagus. It is a historical reality that in Jesus Christ, God has defeated sin and death. And a day of judgment follows our death. Our death is not the end. And before a person dies, Paul's saying they must make a decision. I can worship the God of the universe and believe in his son, Jesus Christ, or I can go it alone. That message is necessary for us. It's necessary for all people everywhere. That's why we evangelize. So while we're waiting for something else, we must take Jesus' message of hope to a world full of idolaters and give them that same hope. Please bow your heads with me in prayer.